This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thanks for being here today. Today's episode is sponsored by Koala Clip. If you are looking for the best way to carry your phone, your keys, your ID, a couple dollars, whatever, on the run or the bike or wherever you're going, look no further than Koala Clip. It is the most useful piece of running gear I own. That is a quote from Wired Magazine Gear Editor. And it's true. I feel the same way. I don't go on a run without my Koala Clip. It clips right in to the back of your Razorback sports bra. It protects your phone from sweat, rain, snow, and cold. It keeps your hands free. You don't have to hold your phone. It doesn't move around. It is amazing. Go to koalaclip.com and use the code ANOTHER for 10% off your order. Koalaclip.com. Use the code ANOTHER for 10% off your order. All right, friends. Today, you're listening to episode 346, and my guest is Sabrina Little. Sabrina is an ultra runner. She's a five-time U.S. national champion, a five-time U.S. national team member. She's a world silver medalist, a team gold medalist from 2013, and she previously held both the 24-hour American record, 152 miles, and the 200K American record, 19 hours and 30 minutes. She placed 12th in the 2018 Trail World Championships in Spain to score for Team USA's bronze medal. And in 2019, she ran the fastest 100K and 50 mile times for women in the US. She's sponsored by Hoka. She is a new mom and she teaches at Moorhead State University. She teaches philosophy and we get into all the running things, the motherhood things, and the philosophy things. A really well-rounded conversation with Sabrina here. If you enjoy the podcast with Sabrina, please share it with your friends on social media. Text your group of friends that like to run and leave us a quick rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. So that can help potential new listeners find the show. Let's see, right now we're almost at 2,000 rating and reviews. Let's get that over 2,000. Okay, and so this podcast is part of the Sandy Boy Productions Podcast Network. Visit sandyboyproductions.com to learn more about the other shows in the network. And if you are looking for a podcast that might help you feel supported as a parent, check out my new podcast for parents called Why Is Everyone Yelling? All right, friends, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sabrina Little. Okay. Well, today on the podcast, we have Sabrina Little on the show. Welcome to the show, Sabrina. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. So you're back in your office for the second time post-COVID. How does that feel? Yeah, it's good. It is completely undecorated because we just can't have in-person office hours yet. So it's a room that I don't know very well, (laughs) but yeah, that's where I am. Wait, so... Are you new enough at your job that you haven't even used it at all? Yes. So I was hired to this position September, uh, August of 2020. Wait, yes. Yeah. So a full year ago. And 
it's been COVID the entire time. So I don't know what the bottom half of any of my students' faces look like. Uh, and it's been, I mean, I'll say it's been an adjustment for most people, but for me, it's the only job I've ever had. So it's just life as, as normal. Um, when you say you haven't seen the bottom half of their faces though, is that you haven't been, have you been teaching in person with masks or have you been doing virtual? Yeah. So all of my teaching has been in person with masks. Um, and it's kind of changed over the course of the last, I mean, so three, three semesters so far, some of my classes were distance in an auditorium where everyone was in masks and I was behind a microphone, but now we're back in normal classrooms. And I think many people are vaccinated and we have masks on. Do you feel like through all this, do you feel like as your first job teaching, like, well, it's not your first job teaching, but your first time in this environment, do you feel like you would have thrived better with what you're doing or would you have preferred to be online? Uh, I like in-person better. It's just, I don't know, being able to see my students' faces. And I mean, sometimes in faculty meetings, we do virtual and it's just so easy to get distracted. So I just assume that for classes that are not in person, they're getting as distracted as I do in faculty meetings. Um, so yeah, I, I like having them in person. It's kind of hard sometimes to hear their voices. And I'm also like mm -hmm. in Kentucky where I'm unfamiliar with the accent. And so sometimes <laughs> they'll say words and I'm like, okay, you're going to have to say that again. Um, but yeah, it's so much better to be in person. Yeah, there's like a human connection that you just don't get online. I mean, I even feel that way when I do interviews. It's it's not that I don't feel like I connect with my guests online, but when you do them in person, the energy is just different. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Now, you're from New Jersey. You don't have a New Jersey accent. I know. Yeah, it's odd. So the rest of my family does. Really? Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's kind of strange. I think maybe because I've been away since I was 18. So just in various schools, um, just kind of on a school journey for the last for the last like decade and a half or something. <laughs> uh, so I yeah, I don't have one. And my husband's also he's from Dallas, and he doesn't have a Texas accent. So at this point, we're kind of placeless in the way that we sound. I wonder what your daughter will be like with her accent. And I say that because we just moved to North Carolina from Indiana. So we all have pretty neutral accents as well. My husband every once in a while gets a little Chicago E in what he says because he's from Northwest Indiana. Um, and it's kind of like leans towards Chicago up there. Um, but all the kids' friends are always saying y'all and they have a little Southern draw. And I'm like, I wonder, especially if our youngest who just has learned to talk will have a Southern draw. Yeah, I I wonder about that. And I'm resisting y'all. I won't <laughs> say it. <laughs> do people say it in Kentucky? They do, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's like Kentucky, Tennessee, down. Because Indiana, right. Indiana you don't really get y'alls. It's like Kentucky's the first southern state to to do it yes well let's talk about your running and your career a little bit for those that might not follow ultra running this could be an introduction to Sabrina so Sabrina's a five-time national champion and she's been on team USA five times in the ultra scene and runs for Hoka also a professor and a mom, so quite the full life you're living. Tell us when you found running. 
Yeah, so I've always done running, I guess, my whole life. I played a lot of different sports, actually, and it was a really great way to grow up because I joined this traveling soccer team as just an elementary schooler. I think I was seven or eight, and the same group of girls did traveling basketball, and then we were also the same group of girls on the softball team, and so every season we were together just in a different sport and it was just a really cool way of just growing up with this group that I mean we stayed out of trouble we worked really hard and just learned how just to be disciplined and we went through like all the awkward growing stages together mm -hmm. of uh like growing up in the sport and how your body changes and someone's short like some season and then they shoot up and just all of that and it was great and I think the one thing that always um the one, I guess, talent that I had um, in all of the athletic arenas was was running. Um, so I knew that I was going to do that um, and take it seriously once I got to high school. And I actually, so I was the youngest person on that group of girls, and they were just a grade or two above me. Um, and so I would always ask them, like, what's track practice like? What do you guys do? And then I would take their workouts and like imitate them on my own and just was so excited. And when I got to high school, um, it really was just as wonderful as I anticipated. I had great coaches um, who made just running really fun. And I grew up in just the northwest corner of New Jersey. So it's like the Appalachian Trail area. And we would do our long runs on the trail and just explore. And it was just beautiful and a great part of my life. And I think the thing that I always did, I'm kind of an achiever type person. And I always kind of compensated for, or like tried to do better by doing more. Mm -hmm. And so I kept like adding to workouts. And so when I started dabbling in ultra running, my coaches were like, well, obviously, this is you've just been like, you know, building towards this sort of thing um, your whole life. So I did go to college to run cross country and track at William and Mary. Um, but after the first year or so, um, I switched over to trail and ultra and have been doing that ever since. Yeah. And it sounds like based on what I've, I've read and, and listened to you talk about that you were kind of always ultra running before you were really technically ultra running. Yeah. And right. So just growing up in the area where I grew up, there wasn't a lot to do outside of just being outdoors. So my friends and I would go for just these meandering runs around town. And sometimes we'd be running and stop at someone's house and then continue on um, just kind of like exploring the trails and being outside. So it really was just kind of a natural way of entering the sport. And when I showed my cross country coach in college, my my running log, she was like, I do not know what this is. <laughs> so it would be like three hour run. Uh, I don't know how long it was. And we were skipping rocks. And then we went down this trail and there were bears and just like this, like kind of epic journey of a run instead of intervals on the track or something like that. So when I found ultra running, um, it just felt like the thing that I had been doing all along and a great fit of people who are like minded. Um, what did you call it? Epic journey of a run? Yeah. <laughs> Which I love. Like, that's such a fun way to think about running, whether you're doing ultras or not, an epic journey. <laughs> I'm so curious, growing up in that environment, 
like as a mom yourself now, I know your daughter's still really young. Um, just like life is so different now, right? I mean, just access to technology and just the way kids live these days is different. And I personally try really hard to make sure that my kids are living that outside life as much as possible. But at the same time, things are just different now. And we, we, you know, we have to accept that in some ways, but I'm curious. And I know that decisions change as your kids get older and your daughter's so young, but like, how do you feel like you want to nurture your daughter in a way that she can experience like those kinds of freedoms and just epic journeys like you had? Yeah, that's such a funny question. I mean, right. So when I grew up, when I was growing up, obviously, we didn't have like the cell phones or things like that. And my best friends and I would just like wander through the woods and (laughs) pop out at various places. And we'd come home at the end of the day. And our parents would be like, where are your shoes? (laughs) Right. (laughs) We wouldn't know. So yeah, it's just interesting to think about. I mean, I cannot imagine letting my daughter have that kind of freedom, I think, in the context that we're in right now, just Mm -hmm. because, I don't know, it just seems like there are so many people who are not trustworthy. And in those days, we knew all of our neighbors. And um, yeah, I mean, there was a kind of accountability that everyone had for each other's children. And I, I, yeah, I'm afraid to think about that. So I mean, my daughter is 17 months old right now. Um, we're just trying to expose her to the outdoors and let her really play. And she loves like puddles and dirt and just giving her the freedom of, of that. Um, and I just don't know. I mean, part of it is I'm an academic and not in a role that I'll probably be in long term at the moment. Um, I'm not in a tenure track position, so I don't know where we're going to end up if we're in a city that'll look different. Um, but I do want her to have like those freedoms to just kind of explore and form friendships over bike rides and playing outside and things like that. Yeah. There is just no greater joy in my life than seeing my kids ride down the street with this big gang (laughs) of biker kids, like everybody just hooting and hollering and having fun. And yeah, my kids are usually the ones with no shoes on. Yeah. <laughs> my in-laws are like, they're forever confused that our kids never have shoes or shirts on. And I'm like, well, you know what? Like at some point this won't be appropriate, but right now it's appropriate. They're kids and if they can be shoeless and shirtless. Um, my husband and I were just talking about this this morning. This is kind of random though, but we were just talking about how like, or no, I saw someone tweet or like, um, something online where someone was like, what's up with kids always having to have water bottles with them 24 seven? Like you never leave the house. You never leave a room. Where's your water <laughs> bottle? Where's your water bottle? And it's like, that's just like one small example of how much like more like we're watching every little move than we were 20 years ago. Like, I don't remember always having to have my water bottle on me. And it's like, kids are just like overhydrated over, you know, over cared (laughs) for in 2021. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Um, anyway, tell us a little bit about your college experience. Like I know when you, um, decided you were going to pursue ultra running instead of, you know, being on the actual team at William and Mary, like, was that a tough decision because you had obviously chosen to run there, like as part of your college trajectory. So tell us about that a little bit. 
Yeah. I mean, honestly, in the moment, I didn't have any regrets about the decision that I made then to kind of step away. But now I have just regrets about it, um, just because I know that that college experience and the team is just something that you don't get to replay. Um, So I kind of wish I had stuck with it longer. So yeah, I mean, what happened was it was my freshman year. Um, I loved the team. I loved the friends that I had there. Um, But the training wasn't a great fit for just what my body could absorb. And I was really used to just higher kind of meandering mileage um, on soft services. And then going to that new location in Williamsburg where I was running on brick and road and doing more high intensity things, I just kept getting injured. So that was, it was just really frustrating um, for both me and for the coach. I mean, although looking back, most of the freshmen were injured that year. It was kind of a transitional year because there was a new coach um, there and she had upped the intensity for a lot of a lot of the athletes. Um, and a lot of them were performing really well, but some of them were kind of dealing with injury too. So stepping away was something that I needed to do just to kind of get myself healthy again. Um, and when I stepped away, you know, my attention started to get pulled back in the direction that I had first encountered running and really enjoyed it. And it became kind of like the dessert of my day rather than something that I was focusing on as like a craft that I needed to hone. And while I did step away from the team, I actually found my way into a different team. There was a group of boys called Team Blitz at William & Mary. And whereas the team, like the Division I team at William & Mary, their student athletes, Team Blitz called themselves athletic students. And so they put just their academics first. And then they kind of, they didn't feel like beholden to workouts. They could just kind of step in and out as they needed to. And that kind of life balance really suited me also. And so I had this group. I was the only girl, which was kind of funny. Like they called me their queen. Um <laughs> And I did trail runs with them and just kind of explored and they crewed my first few ultras. And yeah, it was just a great community of support. So on the one hand, I left this great group of girls and this great team that and I feel the missed opportunity there now. But I loved my experience running with Team Blitz and like having that freedom and getting to have my hands in lots of pots and um, try different things while at William & Mary. I'm so curious, you know, when you talk about like, oh, maybe looking back, you regret leaving the team. I think about like regrets in life a lot. And I wonder like, how do we come to terms with that without like living in this way? We're like, oh, I wish I would have done that. Or I wish I would have done this differently. So I'm curious, like, even though, you know, in some ways you regret it, how does that like sit with you? And how do you kind of like reconcile those feelings? Yeah, I guess I didn't even realize until recently that I had those regrets or even just like, because you know, when you continue to run, um, and at a professional level, the first question people always ask you is like, where did you run in college? And I've had like a little shame around saying, well, I only ran for a little bit. Um, and that's really where the regret strikes me. The regret isn't toward having entered trail and ultra running, because I think that's more suited to me, but just having to tell a story in which I didn't follow through is like where the regret is. Cause I feel like, Mm it's so important to me to see through commitments and to persevere. And I kind of want to know what would have happened if I had stuck it out. Um, 
But then there's the other part of me that's like, well, you know, you found something that was a better fit and it's changed your life in all of these wonderful ways. And I've had like all these other experiences that I wouldn't have had. And so it's almost not worth looking back. It's yeah. I mean, I'm happy with where I am now. So. Hey, everybody, a quick break here to thank Gooder for supporting this episode of the podcast. Listen, if you aren't already wearing Gooder sunglasses while you run, while you bike, while you go to the store, while you do everyday life, you're missing out. Their sunglasses are affordable, they're functional, and they're fashionable. They have the most fun, crazy colors, and they also have some really basic, neutral colors and styles as well. So these can be for on the go, they can be for dressing up, they can be for going on a run, whatever it is. I love the aviator shades. I have them in like a brownish color. I love the breakfast run to Tiffany shades, the runway shades. They're super cute and fun. And then I love all the fun colors. I actually have a really fun yellow pair that worked out perfectly for my banana costume that I wore on Halloween. Uh, you all can save, you can support Gooder, you can support this podcast when you go to gooder.com slash another and use the code another15 and that'll save you 15% off your order. All right, friends, back to the show. Okay, talk about joining Hoka. Well, so early on in the sport, I mean, re- really ultra running has come into its own in the last decade or so, and there's more professionalization. Um, whereas even just 15 years ago, it was kind of the Wild West. And yeah, companies would offer sponsorships, but in most cases, it was like, here's a pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it's changed a lot. And when I first started in the sport, I had a lot of companies reached out in that way. So I had shoes from Montreal and then I had shoes from Innovate um, and some would offer like travel support and things like that. Um, but then, you know, bigger companies started to enter the games and started to enter the sport and started to offer things that were more substantial. And so my first real, I guess, grown up contract has been with Hoka um, and I was at the point really in my running where I didn't want to make any compromises. Like I wasn't going to wear a pair of shoes that didn't, mm. you know, didn't support my training or that I didn't share values with. And so I, at one of the national championships, I had just won the race and they had the Hoka rep there. And I was like, listen, these are the only shoes that I wear. I just, <laughs> I mean, I just wore them in the national championship and had won that title and I was like, if a partnership worked out, that'd be wonderful. Um, but if it didn't, whatever. Um, and they said, I guess, so that was February and they signed people at the end of the year. So they gave me contact information and said, reach out in October and let's talk. Um, and so they signed me then and it's just been wonderful. I mean, the company has grown a lot over the past several years and they've kind of grown to even just stand more firmly in their values. Like they do a great job supporting moms and um, do a great job of just welcoming different people and making the sport kind of hospitable to a lot of people. And they've also just made it possible for me to compete because going through graduate school, you don't have a lot of accessory resources <laughs> to be able to travel. Um, 
and they, you know, paid for trips to Spain and, and all over the country um, to get to compete. So I'm so grateful for them and just kind of honored to be part of a team that stands for more than just the bottom line uh, when it comes to like, I guess, financial things like they, they're just a great company of great people. Um, I love the, is it Mach 4? Is that how you say it? Yeah. Those are my favorite shoes to run in. And I run in all types of brands all the time, just depending on like who I might be working with for different sponsorships and things like that. And those are my favorite shoes. They're so freaking comfortable. Yeah, I love them too. Yeah, I actually wore them this morning, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so national championships, but also you are a professor of philosophy. Yes. I am dying to get into this because I have like wrestled with my like beliefs and all this my entire life. And so when I think of like philosophy, I think prove to me that God exists. But I know it's there's so many more angles to what you do. I'm curious about your upbringing and, you know, like what your belief system is and how you got passionate about studying philosophy. Yeah, um, those are such great questions. Um, so when I got to college, I didn't know what philosophy was. And it wasn't until like I had to take a required philosophy course that I realized, oh, I've been doing this all along, like the kinds of questions that you ask in a philosophy classroom and the kind of books that you read are books that I'd already been reading. So I had read Nicomachean Ethics in high school, and I'd read some Plato, and I'd read um, Hobbes and Locke. And these are all great voices. They're great texts. They're um, key figures, I guess, in the intellectual tradition, but I didn't know them as philosophy. Um, but really, like that question that you asked about, like faith and belief and how it informs, I guess, the discipline of philosophy. Um, that was one of the things that I noticed right away. Um, so I grew up in a Christian household and, um, I don't know, kind of in different churches, actually. So we grew up Catholic. And then at some point, my mom got into a rough crowd. I'm just kidding. Not a rough crowd. It was a Bible study. <laughs> my mom got into a Bible study. And it was a bunch of women from this other church. And so we ended up switching and entering this other church. And that church was great. It was like, we read a lot of the Bible, um, more so than I did in the Catholic church. But I just started having like lots of questions. And so I would pester like the youth pastor all the time, just asking like, well, what does this mean? Like, if God is real, like, why do we have to be good? You know, what does it mean that, you know, God, that Jesus is good for us? But what does that mean for our own action? Or like, how do I actually know he exists? Like, I'm not an emotional person. So I don't feel like, you know, some people talk about just like feeling, you know, presence. And I just like, haven't had those kinds of experiences. So I'd ask all these questions. And my mom would support me through like, finding Christian apologetics sorts of things like she would buy me books um, where people address these questions and took them seriously but my actual like church you know kind of was allergic to those questions like they didn't want me to ask things they spoke to me as though it was like a lack of faith and so part of like finding philosophy in college and finding all these great books was realizing that there's an entire intellectual tradition there's there are people who've asked these questions before me. Um, 
and people who identify as Christian and ask, like, how can I have assurance that God exists? Or what do I do about the problem of evil? Or like, is everybody saved? Like all these like giant questions, just realizing that I wasn't the only person who had these questions. And that was like really reassuring to me um, and has like continued to support support my faith. And it's also been kind of like an interesting, I mean, part of being in the humanities because philosophy is part of the humanities with literature and history is just, I mean, humanities, human, like realizing what it means to be a human and being a human is wrestling with big questions like, why am I here? Or like, what's important? What has value? Like those kinds of huge questions. And I think that philosophy has like a place in just kind of preserving those inquiries and welcoming people into those questions. So you can refine your questions and see how other people have answered those questions. I have this really, so my favorite author, um, Walker Percy, he has this line in one of his books. He says, we live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great technological and scientific advances, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he's doing here. Mm. And that is so true. I mean, it seems like every day we're introducing new technologies and know our world better and have like just no idea who we are or what we're doing here. Um, so I love being a philosopher because I get to ask those questions with my students and show them like, you're not alone in your humanity. Like other people have asked these same things. And here's, you know, some of the resources that they've, they've leaned on or, or ways that they've tried to answer the questions. Wow. Okay. So I think about all this stuff all the time and I oftentimes I'm like, maybe you need a podcast on this because I <laughs> like when a guest is willing to go here with me, it is like my dream come true because I'm always searching and asking questions. And I've oftentimes with, with my wrestling, with my faith and what I believe, I felt like I need an answer. I need an answer. But someone recently I was listening to said like, maybe uncertainty is the answer. Like you will never 100% know exactly what it all is, what it all means, right? And so those people who are actually like 100% certain, what are they missing, you know? Because how can you be 100% certain about God and all these things? But um, one thing I've wrestled with in the last few years, especially, I guess in the world of social media and stuff, everything seems heightened, right? Like everything's right in your face. I oftentimes feel like as someone who grew up in the Christian church and who has a belief in God, like that there's all these intellectuals that think I'm stupid because you can't believe in God and science and all these things. And I really wrestle with that because I don't feel like I'm a super intellectual person. And so I actually oftentimes get intimidated talking to someone like you who is and, <laughs> and my husband, my husband's super intellectual. So I'm just curious, like, how you wrestle with a belief in God and also um, being a very intellectual person, having your doctorate, um, obviously a very strong belief in the sciences. Like, can we just say to everybody that you can be a Christian and also believe in all these amazing things that science has provided us? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and that's one of the things, like, I've had students ask me directly, like, I'm raised to be a Christian, but 
what about all these things that I learned in science class? So the way that our culture often describes um, God's action is as an exception to the way that things normally are. So there has to be something that's like, oh, that's like a, a miracle and it's a break from the natural order. Whereas the way the Christian intellectual tradition often speaks of miracle is more broadly, like God can work through the natural laws as they are. And so the fact that there's order in the universe, um, the fact that there's beauty and so forth, these things are a testament to God being present. And in terms of like, um, yeah, so natural science is really, I guess the one thing that makes me nervous is when people say things like, well, God exists, but on faith, I can't ask questions about the world or I can't do natural science. And it's like, well, if you believe that God created you and God gave you a brain and then he suddenly like, oh, but don't use it. You better not ask any questions. Like, that's the weirder thing <laughs> to me. Like, of course, you're going to ask questions. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's really just kind of seems like a natural fit to look at order and then think about God or, um, yeah, to ask like questions about what we're doing here. And I think someone who's done who models this really well is Thomas Aquinas, who's a really big thinker in the medieval time period. But he wasn't afraid of like drawing on resources or people's knowledge from other fields of inquiry. Like he looked at secular thinkers and he looked at, you know, scientists and other people from different fields and wasn't afraid of, of drawing those questions. So I don't think that there's an incompatibility at all. But I do think that I have a lot of students who are afraid to ask questions of their faith because they think that that means that they don't really have a faith or they're not willing to just yeah, dive right into some belief, like uninformed by knowledge or something. I think the other fear too is like, I'm scared or we're scared that we'll find out what we always believe to be true isn't true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And that's I think hard. I know it definitely is hard. Um, but again, like, I just think there are so many people who have wrestled with the same things and there are ways of like, so, you know, asking questions about creation or something like it was really helpful to me to find out that Augustine, for example, didn't interpret those in as literal days. Like he's like, oh, they're seasons. Let's move on. Or like, you wouldn't read a phone book and look for a good story. So why are you reading the Bible and thinking it's going to be a biology text? Yeah. Like these are just kind of basic interpretive issues. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I just like really hope that people keep asking questions and don't, yeah, aren't, aren't afraid of, of what they'll find because if it's true, it's true. If it's not true, it's not true. And then that would be a good thing to know. Yeah, you know, I um, I think, and it's almost embarrassing for me to say, but sometime into my adulthood is when I realized like, oh, I don't have to take the Bible literally. Like every single story I don't have to take literally. And that makes the faith more believable to me. Right. I don't know yeah, why, I, sure. I don't know at what point in your upbringing and childhood do you tell your kids like this is like a story like explaining a, a certain thing not like oh this literally happened and that really helped me um it, it just helped me believe it helped me believe more because like 
taking things so literally seemed unbelievable. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So, but let's talk about it, like what you actually study. Cause like, you know, like I hear philosophy. I remember I took philosophy like 101 or whatever in college and thinking, thinking that exact thing. Like, I hope this guy can prove to me that there's a God, but I know there's <laughs> so much more to it. Like, um, virtues and ethics and emotional development and things like that. So tell me exactly like what you really focus on. Yeah. So I'm an ethicist, um, and more, and so ethicists, like my field is asking what's good, what's right, what's wrong, what ought we to do? What do we owe each other? What does it mean to live a flourishing life? Right. So oftentimes when people hear the word ethics, they think, Oh, it's just a list of things I shouldn't do. Um, but it's not, it's broader than that. Um, we just have a poor cultural imagination for, uh, what it can involve. Right. So what does it mean to live a good life? Like what's a worthwhile life? Like, does a good life have to be a long life? Um, and then I asked like more narrow questions, like is an athletic life a good life? Like what are qualities reinforced in that? Um, how does it impact the rest of one's life? Um, a lot of my research specifically is in virtue development. So how do you develop good qualities of our person? Like, how do you become a more honest person or a person who has well-ordered anger? Um, where do emotions fit in? Um, how might a poorly ordered emotional state, like detract from someone's goodness or their ability to live a good life? Um, so that's what I'm working in, uh, at the moment. Yeah. Hey, everybody, a quick break here to thank Beam for supporting this episode of the podcast. Beam has my favorite hydration line. I have been running for over 20 years, and I have just never found a hydration product that I love, love, love until I found Beam. I specifically love their Elevate Recovery Blend, which I use after every long run or hard workout. Anytime I'm getting a major sweat on, I am replacing those electrolytes with the Elevate Recovery You can check out their variety pack where they have a probiotic blend, an Elevate Energy blend that you would take pre-workout, and the Elevate Recovery. The Elevate Hydration Powders give your body the electrolytes it craves. When you're hydrated, your body functions the way it was designed to function. Look at that. What do you know? Go to Beam Organics, that's B-E-A-M, organics.com, and use the code another at checkout and that will get you 15% off your order and don't sleep on their dream blend as well which is a nightly delicious drink that has sleep enhancing vitamins very important in my life right now go to beamorganics.com use the code another and that will save you 15% okay friends back to the show Um, and then how do you, like when you think about your athletic life, your motherhood, your marriage, uh, volunteer work, all the things that you do and you think about flourishing life, like how do you like put that all together? Because as someone who studies it, I imagine you're constantly reevaluating how you're doing this to make sure your life is flourishing. 
Yeah, it's a good question. And also, I should say my husband also works in, uh, he works <laughs> in political theory, but also like ask questions of virtue and, and vice. So these are like ongoing conversations all the time. Um, but just the idea is that athletics is like a kind of practice. And so we're practicing the physical things like staying on it, um, like continuing to persevere and increasing your aerobic capacity and trying to become like stronger in certain respects or go faster but there are certain internal qualities that are reinforced in athletics too and so some of them are good features like perseverance right so this is a quality that can impact the rest of your life like if you can stay well in the running context like maybe you can stay well right by reading a book um like finish the <laughs> finish the book instead of just giving up or something like that attention spans kinds of things but then there are also like questions to be asking about bad qualities that are reinforced through running so a lot of runners for example are motivated by envy um just a kind of negative comparison um based on like their competition, how their competition is doing, um, or just kind of a singularity of focus that crowd crowds out the love of other things. Um, so sometimes if I'm really getting focused on a run, like I just care less about, you know, other aspects of my life. And so I'm constantly just kind of examining where like running is fitting into the grand scheme of things and whether like, how to love my daughter well and how to like show priority to her um, and like the proper place that running should have there. But I do know that running is a net good in my life because of the opportunities that it gives me to like physically practice, like putting on virtues and like having good qualities. Um, and it's also just fun. <laughs> too. So, yeah. Yeah. There's this like, I think it's something that as parents, especially with younger kids until your kids are like, you know, well, I'm dealing with like the emotional thoughts of my oldest is nine. And I know in like three years, he's going to start really pulling away because that's like the natural human progression, right? It's a good thing. He should start pulling away. But I'm like already like mourning that when I was like yeah. sitting on the couch with him last night, I let him stay up a little bit later than his brothers because he's older. I just like rubbing his head and I'm thinking in three years, you are not going to want to lay your head on my lap and rub your <laughs> head. And three years is not very far away, you know? Um, but until then, I think we are really wrestling with like, okay, I know I need to be as present emotionally, physically as I possibly can be. But I also know that like my kids need to see me living my life to its fullest and that means enjoying my runs enjoying my reading time enjoying my social time because ultimately we want our kids to grow up and do all of those things too and it's like you don't want this like unhealthy codependency but at the same time you struggle <laughs> with guilt that when you're gone for long periods of time you're not there so I don't know if anybody's perfectly figured that out right yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And there's so much messiness there. It's so funny because I feel like when I write about emotional development, I have such clarity of ideas and then I like interact with my daughter and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I don't know how to like form you well. I don't know how to like grow you up in agency, like so that you have more free will. Do I want you to have more free will or do I want you just here with me all the time? Um, 
or even just thinking about like how theoretically I have clarity about the idea that like a rich flourishing life will have sadness and hardness and suffering in it. Like that's part of a good life. It's part of being human. And also I don't want my daughter to feel any sadness I ever. Know. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Oh, that's so, so hard. Right. Like your kid comes home from school and they're like sad because someone made fun of them or whatever it is. And you're like, yeah, but that is part of life. Like we all are going to experience it. And if you don't experience it now, you're going to experience it in three years or however long it is. So like, how do we teach our kids to manage those emotions? Yeah, it's really hard. Um, I'm curious because, you know, your studies are so focused on like character and ethics and things like that. Well, two, two parts of the question, like the way you were raised, how that kind of like formed this interest and deep passion and then also with how you raise your kids like how will your studies affect that because I think about that all the time with my kids I'm like the biggest thing is like I want my kids to have good character like I want them to morally think through situations and and be the kid that stands up for other kids and all you know all these all these things so I'm just curious like how your upbringing influenced it and then how you will how you take that into parenting without unrealistic expectations too, right? Because kids are kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are such big, good questions. I think, I don't know. Uh, if you ask my siblings, they're probably not surprised that I'm an ethicist. Um, just insofar as of the four of us, I was the most morally sensitive and always like wanting to be the good kid and like, even sometimes like perceiving lines in the sand where there shouldn't have been like needing to get the best grade instead of just a good grade or like wanting to be like having those kinds of perfectionistic tendencies. I think I'm kind of morally sensitive and I don't mean that necessarily in, in always good ways. Like, yeah, like it's good. I was going to behave, but also, you know, in the intellectual tradition, scrupulosity is described as a deadly sin right like if you're like trying to be the the good one or whatever um yeah that's like not necessarily a great way to be a good friend or member of community or whatever um and so yeah so that's something that I, like I'm not surprised that I am interested in what's good bad right or wrong because of like who I am and Maybe there's something to be said about birth order there. I don't know. I'm the third of four. And so I don't know, just like a little chip on my shoulder or something. Um, but then also like how it informs my parenting. That's so interesting. So again, my husband and I are both these people. Um, and so sometimes I'll hear him talking like in the other room to my 17 month old and he'll be like, Lucy, like she'll be crying and they'll say like, Lucy, inside all of us is a tyrant. And we have to use like our reason to help regulate our emotions. Like he's narrating that to her or like during tummy time, he'll be like poetry and gymnastics, Lucy, like we need to form our emotions through physical practice and like trying to just, I don't know, like she doesn't know words yet. Really. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think it's going to be a messy process of just like figuring out, um, like how to bring this work to bear on my parenting. But I do know that like being exemplars, like modeling the right kinds of loves 
does more work than anything that you could say. And so if my daughter sees me like love and respect my husband and, and vice versa, or if we patiently listen to one another, like leading by example, she'll see those as good making features and she can, you know, kids naturally imitate and put on qualities. Um, so hopefully we will give a good example to her. Um, but then I also think, you know, some of the research that I've done has shown that things like emotion coaching, like having conversations about what emotions you're feeling, um, are these suitable emotions for this moment, right? Because the goal is not to not feel anger altogether. The goal is to be angry at the right things and the right, in the right amount and to act on those emotions suitably. Um, and so, yeah, I feel equipped in that way. And I've already started to do this with her, like, well, you're feeling mad, <laughs> like, let's breathe, let's think about it, you know, in just kind of the naive way that you can talk to a toddler at this point. But I'm hoping to do more of that as she grows up. Yeah, I mean, I wish I would have been more in tune to that a little bit sooner. I'm, I think that that's something I've really, I've, in my research and reading and things like that, I've I've learned along the way, like, all, you know, letting the kids feel all the range of emotions that we all feel and they express it differently because they're three or five or whatever. And I think my first couple of kids, I was just like, ah, what's going on? You know? <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad to be kind of like exploring that um, a little bit more now. How did your husband and you meet? Where did you guys meet? Uh, we met at, we had the same internship, but I actually had the internship. It was in Washington, DC. Um, it was a think tank and I had the internship and then he had it the year after. And that whole year I was getting calls from my friends at the job who were like, you need to meet this guy. Like you're either going to be best friends or you're going to marry him. And, uh, the next summer I actually returned to that internship and they just like, conspired to put us in the same situations it would be like David you man the camera Sabrina your task is to stand next to David while he mans the camera and so like it was so obvious and like super embarrassing um but it was the case um that we ended up getting married so oh my goodness that's too good does he run too I saw that you well I know he runs I know you guys run together but does he run competitively so he doesn't run competitively. Um, he runs every day. Um, and most days it's like he'll do the first four miles of my run and we'll bring the stroller and have a good time that way. Um, the longest run that he's done is a marathon. Um, and I don't think he has any interest in doing that, uh, doing any more of those. But it is nice. Like he's just naturally really talented and he doesn't know what paces mean. Mm. So I'll just say like, David, I need you to do like four miles at 545 or something. And he'll just do it. Oh, like wow. he can just, yeah, I'm like, I could have made you the state champion if, <laughs> if I were your high school coach because he's so talented. That's really fast to just not know anything about it and just be able to rip off four five forty fives. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Tell me about postpartum running and what your vision is for the next few years. Yeah, so postpartum running, um, honestly, was pretty straightforward for me in terms of like, I ran every day of pregnancy, um, and I didn't have any issues there. And then I kind of came back into it. And I didn't have any injuries. Um, 
I noticed like immediately like a lack of strength. Um, and I, I felt like while I've been feeding my daughter, like that energy source is just gone. And so mm. I've kind of felt like there's a cap on my ability and it's only been maybe in the last month or so that I've started to hit paces that I could hit previously and start feeling like myself. And so, I mean, to mothers who are listening, I mean, I said I have a 17 month old. Yes, that's <laughs> so, exactly what I was going to echo. Yeah. So this is a really, really long process. Um, that said, like just having had running as kind of secondary to her in the early days has just been invaluable. Like I don't regret any of the times that I've focused on her or spent a little more time just basking in her presence instead of like trying to hit some extra intervals or something. Um, and it does come back. It just takes a little bit longer. So last weekend I raced a marathon and that was really fun. And then this upcoming December, I'm racing Desert Solstice, which is a track invitational race. Um, and I'm hoping to rip a good 100-mile time there. Wait, when is that? It's maybe maybe like the December 13th-ish okay. um, in, that, in that time period. So I'm really excited about it. I used to be, like when I first started the sport, I was really into the 24-hour runs. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had the record in that for a while. Um and so I'm excited. I've never actually done a 24-hour run on a on a track. So I'm excited about like just running circles and <laughs> just being like present there and and trying to get everything out of myself. Yeah, didn't you have the record also at the youngest age for uh most miles in 24 hours or something like that? Maybe. I think I was like 25 or 26 um when I had that record. Um, and Courtney DeWalter actually got it. Um, and she's amazing. It's been so fun to watch her, but that was one of the first like exciting things that, that she did where she really just started popping up on the map. So yeah, it's been so, so fun, like watching her come into her own and take over. She's a fun, like person in general, like her interviews are always really fun and she's just so chill. Yep. Yeah. She's like my favorite athlete to cheer for. She's also so humble um, that I'm glad that she's become like a figurehead of the sport Uh because I think she she makes it more hospitable because she doesn't it's not like she's tooting her own horn or something. I totally see that. And Desert Solstice. Um, I feel like I interviewed Camille Heron or something after she did that. I mean, it's a very popular race, right? Yeah, so Camille did that. I think maybe she's coming back this year, actually, too. Okay. So that'll be good. Yeah. So how fast? Like, give us a, just an idea. I mean, if obviously, you're like, you're going around the track. It's 24 hours. You're trying to get as much ground as possible in 24 hours. What general pace do you think that you'll run in that? Yeah, so I'm just going to go by feel. Um, I assume... I, I'm I'm not going to want to ever run faster than 7:30 pace because mm-hmm. um, you just want to keep it so relaxed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I'm I'm not going to pick a pace. I'm just going to let myself fall into it. Um, my 100 mile PR is like 14 hours and 50 minutes or something. Um, but that was on a trail, so I'm excited just to see like how 
low I can get it when there's no no hills, no rocks, no kinds of interruptions like that. So um, I haven't really dialed in what I'll start at, but when those races go well, it's mostly like whatever your legs are dictating, you just kind of follow. And you're the most ground you've covered in 24 hours. Is it like 150 or 140 something? 152. Okay. 152 is the most. So will you be going after that? So I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to do the full 24 hour. Okay. Um, Cause the desert solstice events, like you can do like any really, you can target any distance. Okay. Um, if I'm feeling good, I'm going to go for it, but I just have to see how training goes between now and then. So you can choose to run as many miles as possible in 24 hours, or you can choose to say, I'm going to see how fast I can do a hundred miles in. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I see. Um, okay. Quick question. When you were talking about, um, the loves and like being an example for your daughter, have you read the book, the four loves by CS Lewis? Yeah. I actually gave that book to all of my bridesmaids because i to make them read it. I love that book. I so okay, I really struggle. I know everybody like loves C.S. Lewis. I just struggle getting into his books for some reason. I try so hard. And part of it is I think like I said, I'm not super intellectual. And so I think that and I'm not saying that to diss on myself. Um, I think they're really hard for me to read. But I did check that out from the library and read it. And so when you were saying that about the loves I immediately thought about that book yeah oh my gosh yeah I love that book I would just say like as encouragement like philosophy in general or just it just takes longer to read Mm. so I tell my students that every semester like nothing is wrong with you if this is taking you longer than a normal book it takes me longer too um and whatever like you can get out of it like there are some books that I've read maybe like I, I read it the first time my freshman year of college and I've gone back and reread and reread. And it's like really fun to look back at some of my notes in those books because sometimes I'm like, wow, I had no idea what was going on. But like I, it generated questions in me. And then sometimes I'm like, wow, I have these same exact questions. So just to see like what persists over time, but it's okay to grow with the book. And it's okay if it like takes longer, like it's nothing about you. It's like genuinely about the book and the kinds of thinking that it prompts in you. I love that. Yeah, because I always try to read, like I like to read a lot and I like to read a lot of books. And so I generally have like multiple books going at once, but like you can't fly through a book like that. And you want to because you want to get to the next book because you want to read more, but it's just like not the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I encourage you to keep at it at that book because it's it's so worth it. It's just like such a good paradigm for thinking about different ways of loving because we just apply the word love in kind of a superficial way in our society. Um, But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just like, well, maybe that's not a good book for you and like move on. But oh, man, I think that one's worth fighting for. Um, that's, that's an interesting point you bring up because I, sometimes I sign off my emails XO and it's not even to someone I'm like really, really close to. And I'm like, am I diluting love here? No, I really mean it. Like I'm really like signing this email off with love, but I oftentimes wonder if, if people think, what do you mean XO? You know, (laughs) like we're not, we're not that close. Yeah. Well, yeah, our, our society, we have one word for love. And like, if you look at just 
the Greek love words, there are like six different kinds, you know, for different scenarios. So you just mean one of the others. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, okay, we're going to wrap up here with some end of the podcast questions. But but good good luck at Desert Solstice. That's really exciting. Thanks. And by the way, the marathon you just ran last weekend, I think it's so funny because you posted like the marathon is like such an attainable distance to train for. And it's funny because for us people that we do run marathons, but that's like the the hundred miler, you know, for us. It's like what your hundred yeah. milers. Um, I always think, man, the half marathon is such an attainable distance to train for because I don't have to do 20 mile long runs. But for you, a 20 mile long run, doesn't seem all that far. Yeah, it's all contextual. Totally, yeah. totally. Um, okay, what's something professionally or personally you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Yeah, so I want to write a book. And I'm actually really early in the process of doing that. So I have a publisher, um, but I haven't really talked about it publicly yet. So I am, so that's the objective. That's what I'm doing. Well, I was going to ask you that actually when you were talking about all the different people that you like to what do you can you say what you want it to be about yeah so I'm writing about character development in sport so ways in which uh running reinforces good qualities in us but also bad qualities in us and sometimes like bad qualities in us that support performance like envy is performance enhancing which is a problem Mm. um and then just like broader questions about where being serious about athletic fits into a flourishing life or ways in which it pulls apart. Um, so those kinds of questions. What's your message to a kid like, you know, that's going to school and is wants to pursue this long term in terms of character and sport? Like if you had to give them one piece of advice. Yeah, I would just say, it's, well, man, it, it, do I have to use kid language? No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, okay. So sports is just not an unqualified good. Like there are ways of participating in sport that serve the goal of developing a good character, but there are ways of being in the sport that don't. So I would say if you want to use sports toward the end of good character, you should think about your relationships, like to your teammates and prioritize those relationships. And also think about the reasons why you're doing things. So why are you trying to do well? Like, is it so that you can support your pride in a superficial way? Or is it so that you can, like, use your gifts to the best of your ability, um, or something like that, but really like check your motivations. It's so interesting. What is human nature, though, in a little small example is like, this morning, my four-year-old, almost five-year-old, is doing a like trikeathon, bicycleathon in their school parking lot, and so we had to load up his bike, take it to school. They're like raising money for something, and he was like, "I'm gonna beat Trip so bad, like Trip is his friend," <laughs> and he was like talking about how much faster he was gonna ride than Trip, and I'm like, "Where does this even come from?" <laughs> and so I'm sitting here saying like you know, you got to support Trip though, like encourage him, like tell him he's doing a good job. But it's like, it was just his actual nature to say he wanted to beat Trip. you know? Yeah, I love it. And you know, competition isn't bad itself. Like it gets the best out of ourselves, but it's just like competitiveness itself is like a great thing. Um, and it can get the best out of ourselves. But it, the only problem is when it impedes with your love of that person. So yeah. if you can be a great friend to this kid and also want to beat him, that's the goal. 
I love that. Okay, that'll be the message I use from now on. Uh, we talked so much about books, but what's the best, most recent book you've read? Yeah, so I just, I've been reading this book called Why Football Matters in the evenings. And I'm not even a football person, but it's just this guy's story of having grown up as an awkward kid in football and then watching his son join and some of the good ways that it's formed him and some of the bad ways that it's formed him. So it's just a really balanced way of, of looking at the ways in which sports can form you for good and for ill. Wow. So is this research for your book or is this like, I just would read this regardless? So it was recommended by the editor, by my editor um, for my book. Um, but it is, it's just really good. I would read it on my own time. It's, it's, it's storytelling. So okay. it's not like philosophy or something. Okay. It does sound really good. Um, what's your best book recommendation for someone who might be wrestling with their faith? Ooh, oh, that's such a good question. Honestly, I want to say C.S. Lewis, but now <laughs> I know Mere Christianity. People always say, have you read yeah. Mere Christianity? And I'm like, I've read it 975 times. <laughs> Yeah, I would probably say mere Christianity. Uh, yeah, I would probably start there. And if not, just have a conversation. Just have a conversation with someone like, I don't know, like some people really take to books and learn that way. But otherwise, I would just say, like, ask questions to someone else who has questions and then work through them together. Okay, last book question. Have you read the Universal Christ by Richard Rohr? No. Okay. Should I? Yeah, read it and then email me. Okay, sounds good. Because I, I have some, I, I'm going to reread it. Um, I actually talked about that with Tyler Green on the show. Like towards the end of my interview with him, we connected over this and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't, like we had literally both just read the book. And so, um, yeah, read it and let me know what you think. Okay, sounds good. Um, who's someone fun, motivating, or inspiring you'd like to have coffee, tea, or cocktail with? Yeah, I honestly, I, I would just like to say my mom, she, mm -hmm. so I lost her about 10 years ago. And um, just a lot of life has happened since then. Like I've gotten married, I have a kid now. And I just like, would love to pry your brain. And like, yeah, ask questions that I didn't know to ask as a kid. I bet you would. Um, how many years after her ovarian cancer diagnosis did she end up passing away? So it was eight years. So she fought like a very good fight. And there were some like quiet years in there and then mm -hmm. some like toward the end where it was like more fighting than just flourishing. But yeah, yeah. Um, my grandma actually passed away from that. And that was about similar story, si similar journey, eight, probably around eight years that she battled it. Um, OK, what is your last message to leave with our audience? Okay, my last message is that you should wonder about things instead of Googling them. Ah, it just seems like anytime when we have questions, we just Google instead of just actually do the human work of like wondering about things, what might follow from different things. So that's my advice. I love that advice. Sabrina, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much, Sabrina, for coming on the podcast. You all can learn more about Sabrina. Just go to sabrinalittle.com. She's also on Instagram as Sabrina Little. You can follow me personally on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine 66 I'd love to connect with you there. Uh, don't forget to check out my parenting podcast. It's called Why Is Everyone Yelling? You can learn more about Sandy Boy Productions and 
all the shows in the network when you go to sandyboyproductions.com and check Sandy Boy out on Instagram, Sandy Boy Productions. Uh, thanks so much for being here today, friends. Have a really great rest of your day. And as always, we will see you next Friday. <laughs>